0: Coming up today on The Story.
1: We always watched the news in our household. It was one of the big things we always did. And Tony came on and my mum was watching with me. And she said to me, now why can't you meet a nice guy like that, Narelle? And the funny thing was, this job came up at MBN 3 and I thought, well, that's what I'm going to go for. And I got it and um, I would bump into Tony in the hallway and I would go home and i said, say, well, Mum, I've met him.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The Story. G'day, I'm Jimmy Colfax. Welcome to The Story. From New Zealand to England and then Hong Kong, from international news reporter to news producer on the Gold Coast... Tony and Narelle Davenport have lived quite an adventurous life. However, it wasn't until Tony made some risky financial investments that went wrong that he began to feel the strain, and God got his attention in a unique way. We'll hear their story today as Eric Scatterbo has a chat with Tony and Narelle Davenport who are joining us from their home on the Gold Coast. Tony and Narelle, welcome to the program.
1: Hi, thank you for having us.
2: Thanks for being with you, Eric.
3: Glad to have you with us. And I guess it all starts with you, Narelle, as you became a Christian long before, Tony. Let's hear your story first. Where did it all begin?
1: Well, um, I was born in Newcastle in New South Wales, Mm -hmm. and um, I wasn't in a Christian home. Though in the 1950s and the 1960s, I think everyone generally believed they were a Christian, whether they went to church or not. I was sent to Sunday school as a child, and I was confirmed But my parents didn't go to church at all. In fact, my father was a Catholic and he actually changed to be an Anglican because of my mother, Um, but neither of them attended church. And so I always had a head knowledge. I always thought Jesus was real, Mm -hmm. um, but I had no personal relationship and I had no understanding except the fact that I believed historically that he came to earth. But when I was a teenager, I became very, very ill with glandular fever and I just started university at the time and um, I became very ill with glandular fever and it also affected my liver. So I was actually put in quarantine for a few months. I was very ill. Um, I had to defer my university studies and it was during that time that my niece had recently become a Christian and she had gone uh-huh. to a youth conference uh-huh. and she'd given her life to God. And she brought some books over for me to read because I was stuck inside. Uh-huh. I'm an avid reader. And so a couple of those books she brought over one was God's Smuggler by Brother Andrew. Uh-huh. And the other one was um, The Hiding Place by Corrie ten Boom. Mm-hmm.
3: Oh, yeah. And
1: I have always loved stories about World War II. Mm-hmm. But it was when I was reading God's Smuggler about um, Brother Andrew who was smuggling books into Russia behind the Iron Curtain at that time that I read um, in one of the chapters about how they heard God speaking to them. And I was amazed. I still remember the feeling I had when I was reading it from the page and thinking, what? God can speak to you? I didn't know that. And uh, I was absolutely fascinated by that thought. Um, And so I read the book. I read Corrie ten Boom, and uh, my heart was interested, (laughs) (laughs) if I can explain it like that. It didn't make sense to my mind, but my heart was Mm. interested and there was something else that um, that I felt as a child. I had been given a Bible, I think, when I'd been christened, and I never read it. But if I was feeling um, sad or I was having problems mm-hmm. or difficulties, I would pick it up and I felt peace. And I just didn't know why. Mm-hmm. Why was I feeling this peace yeah. when I picked the Bible? So... They're my very strong memories yeah. of God beginning to call me to become his child.
3: I guess you could say some seeds were planted in your youth.
1: Yes, that's, that's exactly right.
3: Okay. Yes, that's- now let's turn over to you, Tony. Where were you born and raised?
2: I was brought up in a country, New Zealand, in a small town. And when I was small, I'd always be sent to Sunday school and, um, My parents went to uh, church sometimes. My mother sang in the choir, got dressed up in the choir robes and things like that. Like they'd take us, my brother and I, we'd go to church faithfully, but we didn't really know why. We had no idea. And our parents never, ever had an intimate conversation with us about things of God and about uh, Jesus and things Mm -hmm. like that. Um, But we had to learn our catechism and all that sort of Mm -hmm. weird stuff. And I just go through the motions. No one ever explained to me why I would do that. So I wasn't very spiritual at all. Uh, My granny was um, brought up in England. Um, She was actually the only one in my family who had any understanding of God and love of God. And Mm -hmm. I remember she had in the days when we all wrote letters to each other, she would always sign off her letters with the Mizpah from the uh, the Old Testament uh, place. Um, oh. like, it, it's like it's like something like "keep safe" or something like that. I can't remember exactly what it was. I was going to look it up before the interview, but <laughs> but I remember my granny had a, had a. She was a lovely, friendly old lady, and she had a love of um, definitely a love of God, but. The rest of the family know. So oh, okay. um, when I was a teenager, I was got sent to boarding school, and it was a secular boarding school, so there was no oh, okay. Christianity. Mm-hmm. We were we were expected to go to church on Sundays, uh, but no teachers would come with us, and so most Sundays we went up uh, a little hill overlooking uh, Auckland in New Zealand and sunbaked. While everyone was at church in summer, and then we'd go to church in the winter because it was too cold. And um, all the boys would compete to uh, see who could drink the most wine from the cup. It was one of those cups they pass around to each uh, parishioner. Uh, So it doesn't (laughs) sound very spiritual at this point. No, it wasn't. It wasn't. It was more of a social thing, a thing to do that you went there.
3: So when you finally went off to university, would it be safe to say that you were pretty secular in your mindset?
2: Even more so, like I had a good moral upbringing and structure. My parents never swore or anything like that. Oh, like I was a really well-behaved child because mm-hmm. they set very good principles. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after school, and I let my hair down, the rebellious and understanding There there's a lot of lot of temptations in the world and a lot of things to try out and discover. So that was very much what I did. Mm-hmm. When I was a little kid, I always read the newspaper. We'd get the New Zealand Herald and I would just sit down and read virtually every page of it. And even the racing pages, I'd pick the winners and that sort of thing. <laughs> But my parents said, "Oh no, journalism's a you know a, that's not a very good profession. Don't don't try for that." So, wow. and, and there wasn't much opportunity in New Zealand. There was only one university that taught um, journalism at that stage. Uh, so I I did an economics degree, and didn't really like it, but I, I graduated. I got through okay, no problems, and got a few A's as well. But hmm. the journalism seed had been sown, and. Mm-hmm. Um, after painting houses for a few months, I said saved enough to go overseas, and I had booked a um, trip to London. This is thing people you know, down under often do. They have to get away from their countries and go and see the world. And often it was the trip to London. I booked a ticket to London, and then halfway through, I got to Bangkok and went to Japan instead. But during that experience in Asia, I was in Asia for three years, just uh, backpacking, but surviving on teaching English. Um, I was in sort of like a model in Japan, like do all these weird weird jobs, like appear in like there weren't many foreigners there then. Uh And I'd appear in um, TV commercials, TV series, that sort of thing. You were in a TV series? Yes, but not a, only a bit part. But because I was the guyjin, the white, the white person, the, I played an American prison guard at one stage. <laughs> uh, you get paid to go all around Japan and, and do these things, oh, and huh. then I'd have to. I did about three English teaching jobs, and I'd rush on the Tokyo tube to one place to another. Um, I actually was able to do this because I shared a house with. There were three foreigners and ten Japanese, and the foreigners got free board for speaking English with the uh, with the Japanese. It was three years of backpacking, but it was an amazing um, education. It was the best education I ever had, and uh, like I did crazy things, like I walked across East Timor because it was flooded, and uh, and this was just before it was invaded, and oh, wow. uh, and stayed at lots of uh, huts and things like that, and would travel across the island because there was no transport it was just it was it had been all washed away the roads had been washed away the planes were booked out
3: Wow, so it sounds like you had quite an adventure in several different countries.
2: Oh, oh, absolutely. It was just travel, travel, travel. And um, like I'd go on trains and I'd ride on top of trains across Sumatra, go up into the Golden Triangle in Thailand and see all sorts of crazy people like a soldier who would just fire his guns as we are in a canoe going down the drug capital of the world at that time. So it was just an amazing experience. And uh, I think it just prepared me for later life because I was always traveling and trying to see what I could do. Mm. I I worked on a newspaper in Bangkok, English language newspaper in Bangkok for a while. I sort of conned my way into the job because (laughs) uh, I I, I wasn't that experienced, um, but I just said I was and made it up and got a job because there weren't many foreigners around to do that. You got paid nothing, absolutely nothing, but it was enough to live on at at the time. Mm. But that sowed all the seeds of my experience. Then there was a coup in Thailand and the paper was closed down and I went back to New Zealand and tried to find a job in New Zealand and there's just, it was was during the oil crisis of 1975 or 76 or so Mm -hmm. and I couldn't get a job there at all.
0: You're listening to The Story. Today Eric Scatterbo is chatting with Tony and Narelle Davenport who are sharing their story as a couple with us. As a side note, Tony mentioned that his grandmother ended letters by writing Mizpah. I've looked it up, and it comes from the story of Jacob and Laban in the Bible. Over the years, Mizpah has come to be known as an emotional bond between people who are separated. Mizpah jewellery often features the words, The Lord watch between me and thee when we are absent one from another. So Mizpah is a short way of conveying all that at the end of a letter, like Tony's grandmother did. Well next we'll hear how Tony and Narelle eventually meet at a TV station And how Narelle becomes a Christian All that and more when we return The Story If this program has highlighted something you'd like prayer for We'd love to pray for you Call 1-800-PRAY-FOR-ME That's 1-800-772-936 It's a free call Or text 0401 132 888 Hi, I'm Jimmy Colfax and this is The Story. We're continuing with Eric Scatterbo chatting with Tony and Narelle Davenport who are sharing their story as a couple and how God has been working in their lives. Before the break, we heard their individual backgrounds. Next, we're going to hear how they eventually meet and how God began working in Narelle's life.
2: So my father, who was a vet, he got me a ticket or not a ticket. I didn't even need a ticket. I came into Australia on the back of a racehorse plane. I I have no idea how he did it. But my father, who was in the Department of Agriculture, uh, said, oh, yeah, yeah, we will get you a ticket. And he Somehow took me through, I didn't even seem to go through immigration, no passport was stamped, huh. and I got on the back of this, this plane bringing all the top racehorses from New Zealand to Australia, and I got out at Sydney Airport and I just got off the plane and walked out the main gate, there was no <laughs> oh, customs wow. or anything, that was my introduction to Australia. Yeah, and then I, I I was determined that I was going to get a journalism job, and mm-hmm. so I lived in a little attic looking at the Opera House on the other side of the harbour, and uh, it was a boarding house, and wrote to every uh, TV station in Australia pleading for a job and some newspapers, mm-hmm. and then I worked at Luna Park as the cleaner, and so that was that was fun because on the weekends you would get to run. Uh, operate rides like the Big Zipper, and oh, everybody's man. money fell out on the Big Zipper. And so <laughs> we, we after every ride, we'd go and collect all the money and, uh, and make a huge bonus every weekend. Um, well, that's one way to make a buck. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So after six months or so, I got two offers in the same day, actually. I had a Sydney Morning Herald cadetship and then a job in Newcastle TV. And I really wanted to work in TV, so I took the Newcastle TV Mm -hmm. job and became a TV reporter, which I absolutely loved at the time. I'd do Mm -hmm. about five stories a day, and it was really exciting, traveling all around the Hunter Valley and everything. And that's where I met Narelle.
3: Okay, well, this is where we bring Narelle back into the story because, Narelle, you saw Tony on TV, is that right?
1: I did. Um, It was probably not long after I recovered from the glandular fever, And we always watched the news in our household. It was one of the big things we always did. And, um, yes, Tony came on and he was, I think it was the story about women doing gym dancing, you know, at the gym and they were dancing and Tony was playing a part in that and doing some dancing. (laughs) And um, and he was wearing a safari suit, of course, (laughs) at that time. And my mum was watching with me. And she said to me, now, why can't you meet a nice guy like that, Narelle? And um, I thought, oh, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) And the funny thing was, um, I wasn't at university anymore. I was having a break after being so sick. Mm -hmm. And a job came up with NBN3 in Newcastle for a trainee copywriter. And I had always wanted to write. In fact, I'd wanted to be a journalist like Tony, but probably in the newspaper. My best friend actually got an internship with the Newcastle Morning Herald, Mm -hmm. and I really wanted to do something similar. But this job came up at MBN 3 and I thought, well, that's what I'm going to go for. And um, I got it Mm -hmm. and um, loved the job. And um, I would bump into Tony in the hallway and in the kitchen. Area, and I would go home, I said, Well, Mum, I've met him. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Made her happy.
1: Yeah, and she was happy. Yeah, so that's how we met. But not long after that, Tony moved to Brisbane, didn't you? He, he yep. left the job.
3: Oh, he left you.
1: Well, yes. yes. <laughs> it was very heartbreaking at the time. I was pretty upset he left and um, I actually went away for two weeks on my own on a holiday to Vila, which I'd mm-hmm. never I'd never flown before, but I just thought, no, I need to get over this. And I went away. And when I got back, Tony wanted to fly me up to Brisbane.
3: Well, wait. So you had started a relationship at this point?
1: Yes, we had. Just before probably about six months before he left to go to Brisbane, um, we had actually started a relationship around the Christmas. Mm -hmm. And then there was a great job that came up in Brisbane. Mm -hmm. and I was still living at home with my mum at the time. Tony went up to Brisbane, and then he organised and paid for a flight for me to come up and meet him up there, and from that point onwards, we basically decided that I would come up to Brisbane and live with him up here. So I said goodbye to my mum, which was very sad for her at the time because my dad had not long died. And um, so, yes, I flew up and we lived together up here in Brisbane, and I got a job as a copywriter in the radio station mm-hmm. and also at an ad agency, so um, I was working in media. And, yeah, yeah, so that was about that time. And then I asked him to marry me.
3: <laughs> oh, you proposed to him?
1: I proposed to him, yeah. Oh. <laughs> and he said yes. So Isn't Yeah. That weird? Yeah. <laughs> yeah they- <laughs>
3: So both of you are not Christians at that point, and no,
1: well, not Christians. At all. But yep.
3: God began to work in your life through a trip to Canada. Is that right?
1: That's right. Tony, unbeknownst to me, had already booked a ticket to go to Canada, and um, I think he had done it quite early on. I didn't know about it, and then he told me about it. And he booked me a ticket as well. Um, that's after I proposed to him, and <sighs> so we classed it as our our honeymoon before the marriage. So we were getting married in the January of 1980, Mm -hmm. but we went to Canada in 1979 in the October. It was just before Reagan was elected as president. Mm -hmm. So we had a great holiday. We loved it over there. Um, Tony was over there to look for jobs, but he can explain that. But it was during that trip that I began to hear from God And some background to that is my father had died and I had three other sisters and a brother and my mother. And once my father died, they all, one after the other, like ten pins, became Christians. Oh. Mm. Um, Yes, it was quite amazing. So I was probably the last daughter to not become a Christian at that point. And Mm -hmm. then we were overseas in Canada and we were travelling by public transport, train, um, buses, everything from Vancouver over to New York. And then we came back to Toronto. And so it was about five weeks. And we were going on fast trains, like through Banff. you have know, got the open um, globe at the top of the train so you can see all the mountains. Hmm. And we go up those cars that take you up to the mountains, you know, the... Um, Gondolas. That's right. And it was when I was perhaps in the train and the gondola... I would have an experience of hearing um, what I now know um, was the enemy, the devil, speaking in my head, saying that um, this train was going to crash
3: hmm.
1: or the gondola was going to crash and hit into the mountain. And then after that, then I would hear, um, which I now know was God, saying to me, if you come to me, I will be your father and hmm. I will after you and you'll be in my family and I was just absolutely amazed it was that inner voice you hear Mm -hmm. in your head you know I can look back and know yes that's that was God speaking to me and this went on all through the trip but I didn't tell Tony at the time because I really hadn't made sense of it and I thought he would just laugh at me
2: Mm. I wanted that (laughs) yes 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 at that point Yeah. yeah yeah Even though I know on the the gondolas, I remember some American ladies saying, gee, what will we do if it crashes and all that sort of (laughs) stuff? I actually remember them saying that. So that probably sowed more fear into Narelle.
3: Yeah. yeah, And then how did you eventually become a Christian?
1: Um, So when we came back in the November, near the end of November, I told my sister. Now, this sister was the closest to me in age, and she was nine years older than me. Mm -hmm. And she had become, she was a Christian just, you know, recently. And I told her what happened to me. And she knew exactly what I was talking about and told me that would have been God speaking to me. And I remember going to a couple of, um, like, ladies meetings with her. She was Mm -hmm. at Garden City Christian Church at the time in Brisbane and I remember feeling that peace, that mm. peace ca- came over me mm. while I was just sitting listening to these ladies talk. And I, I had this crying out in my heart, yes, I want to know this God, but mm. I didn't want to say anything. I was too frightened to do that. I just didn't want to take that risk. And in the um, December, it was my sister's birthday, And she was taking me to my wedding dress So She was actually made my wedding dress for me, and I was going for one of my last fittings. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that the um, the woman who was doing the sewing, I can't remember the name, she actually turned out to be a Christian as well. Mm -hmm. And so my sister is there talking to the sewing lady, and they're having all this wonderful conversation about God, and I'm sitting there thinking, oh, no, not again. (laughs) (laughs) I was, oh, no, I just want to get away from all of this. And um, then after that, um, my sister drove me back to our flat in Flower, and it was her birthday. It was her birthday, which made it even more special. And she came into the flat with me, and somehow we started talking about God again. And she asked me if I would like to give my life to Jesus. And I said yes. And we knelt down on the floor, and she led me in the prayer. And I just totally noticed a change straight away Mm. within my heart. I felt like the quickening of God within me. And she had to leave not long after that, but um, she prayed for me and then she left. And then I remember, you know, I closed the door and I was walking um, through to the bathroom when I heard God speak to me. And he said to me, I will fill you with my Holy Spirit and you shall witness for me. Wow. And I, I knew nothing. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know anything about anything like that. I was just, wow. And I got that old Bible out of mine from, <laughs> that I yeah. had from a child.
3: Uh-huh.
1: And immediately I had such a hunger for God's word and his truth.
3: So you gave your life to the Lord. But meanwhile, you're about to get married to somebody who has no interest at that time in things of the Lord. Yep. So that's kind of the dilemma, in a sense, you were facing at that time?
1: It was a total dilemma. And I remember now, you brought that up. um, I said to my sister at the time when she led me to the Lord, I said to her, so what will happen about Tony? And she said, well, God will work that out. And that's what happened. I remember I waited to Christmas Day I don't know why I waited till then, but I, I wanted Tony to know it was important that he knew what mm-hmm. was going on within me so yep. he could decide not to marry me if he didn't want to.
3: Oh, so you were kind of giving him an out if he didn't want to yes. marry somebody who is now a Christian.
1: Yes, that's correct, because I didn't want to do it under false pretenses. and I Obviously, becoming a Christian was completely different to who I was before. Mm-hmm. and also for him as well. It would affect him in some ways, I imagined. So I wanted to give him that opportunity, and so I, I did. Um, I, I told him on Christmas Day, and um, do you remember what you said
2: back to me?
3: I yeah, to Tony, I, point I point wanted to hear your response. What were you oh, thinking? No,
2: world no, no, can tell you first because I can't remember. <laughs> you do remember getting married though, right? <laughs> Oh, absolutely. Look, I remember more about that day, but Narelle, you tell me what I said.
1: Okay, so I told him what had happened to me. I'd given my heart to Jesus, and he said, well, as long as it doesn't affect me, it won't matter. As long as it doesn't affect him, I could go and do whatever I needed to do.
3: Little did he know then what he was saying.
1: Exactly.
0: Well, that was part one of Eric Scatterbo chatting with Tony and Narelle Davenport, who was sharing their story as a couple with us and how God has been working in their lives. We invite you to join us again next time when we'll hear more of their story and how God eventually gets a hold of Tony's heart in a very unique way. That's all coming up next time. Meanwhile, I just want to say that it's always interesting to hear how God gets people's attention in different ways. As we heard for Narelle, it was when she was hanging on a gondola that both fear and peace came to her. The fear came from the devil and then peace came from the Lord. This was just one of the many seeds that God planted in her life that eventually came to fruition when she put her faith in the Lord. However, as we just heard, her soon-to-be husband, Tony, had no real interest in spiritual things. But, as we'll hear next time, Tony will make some risky financial investments that'll go wrong, and he begins to feel the strain. That's when God finally gets his attention. This reminds me of a quote from C.S. Lewis, who said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciousness but shouts in our pains. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. I guess we're all different. For some, God only needs to whisper. And for others, he needs to blare at us through a megaphone to finally get us to listen. The great thing is he loves us and is patient with us, regardless of how stubborn, We might be at times. Well, next time, we'll hear more of Tony and Narelle's story and how Tony eventually hears from God. Until then, I'm Jimmy Colfax, encouraging you to share your story with someone today.
2: Next time on The Story. I would imagine it was like a a Jesus freak, hippie type character holding up a sign, and that sign said, John 3.16. And I started crying. This is all in the dream. Although in real life I woke up crying and I just woke up and I said to Narelle, because I didn't know the Bible at all, I had no idea what John 3.16 was. So I said, Narelle, what's John 3.16?
0: Tony and Narelle Davenport have lived quite an adventurous life travelling from Australia to England and then to Hong Kong. But it wasn't until Tony began to feel the strain from some risky financial investments that God got his attention in a very unique way. We'll hear more of Tony and Narelle's story next time. The story, just another way vision is connecting faith to life.